you're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome again to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me in this new year. Hope you're starting out the new year well uh, with your Bible reading plans and other goals and dreams that you have, uh, probably just getting back into the sort of swing of the school year, wherever you are doing that here as I've got a full teaching load and doing a number of other things. Today, we've got a great podcast in store for you. But before we get to my guest, uh, I'd like to tell you about a couple of things. First of all, check out my book, The Characters of Creation. If you're starting out the new year in your Bible reading in uh, the book of Genesis, this could be a good companion for you. It goes through the first kind of 11 chapters and some of the major characters in the story. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah, his sons, and even some of the uh, bad characters like uh, the serpent and Satan and the Nephilim. What are these, what are these mysterious characters? Um, so check out... Check that out. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com, and find out more information about the book, or you can find it at any of your favorite retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, christianbook.com, your favorite independent retailer. I would love to see you uh, pick up that resource uh, for your Bible study this year. Secondly, uh, I've decided to start uh, a writing cohort with my friend Chad Poe at Throughline Cohorts. I've had many of you uh, reach out to me and say, you know, I think I'd like to write or I'm interested in writing. But I'm just not sure uh, where to start or if I even should start. Should I start writing articles? Do I pitch to people? Do I go to, um, do I start, I have a book idea, all that kind of thing. This might really be what you need. I'm going to offer several sessions, uh, teaching sessions on the craft of writing, the, the business of writing, how to get published. I'm going to have bring some guests in that uh, are experts in the field and have some evaluation and advice and coaching. So I'd love for you to be part of this. If you're interested, uh, check out throughlinecohort.com slash writing. Also, you can go to the show notes here for this page uh, for this podcast, and we'll have links to that throughline cohort, and you can sign up and get more information on what this is about. But I'd love to have you join us. Okay, today's guest is my friend Colin Hansen, and uh, I've had Colin on here a number of times. Colin is uh, not only a good friend; he's someone who's really had influence in my life in a number of ways: writing, uh, ministry, a whole bunch of other things. Uh, Colin is a vice president at the Gospel Coalition. He's also an author, a podcast host. He hosts a, a great podcast called Gospel Bound, and just an influential Christian leader. Well, I wanted to have him on because he has a brand new book out uh, that is a, a biography of sorts of one of my spiritual heroes, uh, Tim Keller. If you don't know who Tim Keller is, which I'm sure you do, but if you don't, he is a very influential pastor who uh, founded, uh, planted really, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the heart of New York City in Manhattan. Uh, he's written a number of books uh, that have been really influential. Perhaps his most well-known book is The Reason for God, which is really an apologetic for the Christian faith. He's a pastor. He's an evangelist. He is a church planner, uh, an institutional leader, so many things. And Colin Hansen Hansen has written a biography, but it's a unique kind of biography. It's about his spiritual and intellectual formation. Who are the people who influenced him? And you'll, you'll be surprised by some of the people. Obviously, if you've read Keller, you know that he's been influenced by people like C.S. Lewis. 
and and others like that, Jonathan Edwards. What you may not know is he he first studied with R.C. Sproul. His uh, spiritual formation happened in college through a campus group. I'm not going to give too much of it away because I want you to listen to the interview. Uh, but I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Colin Hansen about Tim Keller. I'm glad to have my good friend Colin Hansen back on the Way Home Podcast. Colin, thanks for joining me today, man. Oh, it's always it's always a fun time here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So, man, there's so much we can catch up on, <laughs> but I want to get right to the reason I had you on. As you have a new book out, and you've been telling me about this for a while, but yeah. it's it's out or it's about to be out. I, this will probably post in a couple of weeks from we're recording like a couple of weeks before Christmas, but it's out in February, I believe. Yeah, it's about Tim Keller. A sort of spiritual intellectual biography. And so tell me a little bit. I mean, obviously you've worked the gospel coalition. You've worked closely with Keller for a number of years, been influenced by him as many of us have. Tell me about this book. It's a little bit different than a straight up biography. Yeah. Tell me what's unique about the approach that you took. Well, it's, it's unique in a number of ways, Dan, in part because I'm pretty close to Tim and because Tim's a living figure. So you can't really mm-hmm. call it a critical biography, and it's not a comprehensive biography because, Lord willing, Tim will be with us for many years to come. So mm-hmm. what it is is an, an idea that the publisher and Tim had talked over and that I'd contributed with of exploring the influences on Tim Keller which, as you know, Dan, is often a big part of biographies. But this is a lot more about, say, for example, Tim Keller learned how to teach the Bible in InterVarsity. And that became a lifelong uh, study for him, obviously, as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a book writer. But it all went back to a basic inductive Bible study method that he learned from the first female staff member of InterVarsity in the United States, Barbara Boyd. So it's you're learning about Tim Keller, but you're learning about Barbara Boyd. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's about Tim Keller's years at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, where he where he eventually became friends with and met his wife Kathy. But it's also a story about Elizabeth Elliot. Not a lot of people realize that the Kellers mm-hmm. were close with Elizabeth Elliot, who was one of their professors at Gordon Conwell. That I did not know quoted that. in her book "Let Me Be a Woman." But most people don't realize that because it's Kathy Christie in there. It's it's a look at Kathy as the major influence on Tim Keller. But a lot of people don't realize that Kathy, as a 12-year-old, was one of the last people to correspond with C.S. Lewis before he died. Man, so it's a study about, about C.S. Lewis, who's become a, one, of the ma- one of the top three influences on Tim Keller. And... If you look at uh, Tim's first book, the reason for first major book, the reason for God in 2008, he says there are three major influences in his life, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, and Kathy Keller. And Kathy is number one because she's the one who introduced him to the other two. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's correct. Amazing. So that's what, it, that's what it's looking at in the book. You, you know, I always love, I mean, Keller's had such a profound influence on me in terms of his writing and speaking and, and public witness. I, like you, am very interested in, in people's stories. I love biographies. And I always love to hear, it's fascinating to me, 
someone's origin story, you know, pieces about them. You don't realize, I think people, when they interact with Keller's work, probably come at it different pieces, this book here or this talk here may not know the full Keller story. So, you know, take me back to the beginning, the, 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 first few influences you mentioned intervarsity yeah. the college ministry and and you think back to the real impact of college ministry during that era mm-hmm. uh, intervarsity crew all of those mm-hmm. and the the intentional and deep discipleship right mm-hmm. you think of what intervarsity was publishing who they're platforming right so obviously intervarsity but then also Ligonier comes along, right? Like mm-hmm, R.C. Right. Sproul. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, <laughs> that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And like who some of their teachers might have been. And then the C.S. Lewis thing. So maybe take me back to that b- b- beginning part. Who are some of those first, obviously, early influences on, on, on Tim and Kathy? Yeah. So the other major piece to introduce here would be Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney was the first president mm-hmm. of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. It was active between at Westminster you know, post-war period all the way until actually Tim Keller replaced him in the 1980s, in 1985. But Clowney actually got to know, he's one of the only figures that transcends most of Tim's life. So Tim got to know him as a speaker talking about existentialism, which is actually something he had studied at Yale as a graduate student at Bucknell when Tim was an undergrad through InterVarsity, and also retreat he did on the local church. And that then went to, then it was, Gordon Conwell was one of the places that Ed Clowney recommended that he go to, even though Ed was the president of Westminster. By the time, Tim wasn't reformed. So Gordon mm-hmm. Conwell was a better fit for him kind of exploring different theologies. And then Ed comes in later as... I mean, he was. He then gave a series of lectures at Gordon Conwell, the Staley Lectures in 1973. That's, as far as I can tell, Dan, no one had listened to those things since 1973. But when you go back, and thankfully Gordon Conwell digitized them for me uh, from reel to reel. And as I went back, I realized almost every major theme uh, for Tim Keller theologically is found in those five lectures. That was mm-hmm. significant. That's a big part of the book. Then you connect it to then Tim going to Westminster as a demon student, doctor ministry student, and then again later coming back as a um, coming back then as a replacement for replacement for uh, Ed as he retired. And then they continue all the way to Reform Theological Seminary when they're lecturing together on preaching in a postmodern age. So that's the other major influence that I don't think, Dan, a lot of people know about. I don't think Ed is kind of a household name anymore, even though Mm -hmm. he was headlining these Urbana conferences with 20,000, 25,000 students um, back in the day, the 1960s and 70s, a major figure. But I'm going to be happy, Dan, if one of the things that this book accomplishes is a renewed interest in all of these godly, dedicated, humble, faithful servants of God from that period of time, the last 70 years of evangelical history, and and gives us a, a renewed appreciation for them. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to think of that trajectory, Colin, because I think we think a little bit of reform theology, kind of the, this resurgence in the last 20 years, you know, the young wrestles reform that you <laughs> chronicled initially. And so to be reformed in 60s and 70s wasn't as maybe wasn't as mainstream as it is today. Yeah. Or maybe we're just not maybe we're looking back and not remembering our history well because of Ed Ed Clowney's headline conferences, RC Sproul's getting started. Yeah. Right. But it does seem it was a bit more of a niche thing yeah. when Keller 
was going through his formative years. So I think it's just interesting uh, to me that well, um, well, Dan, I you know one of the my first book that if people typically know me as an author, it's because of my book Young Restless Reformed. One of the most mm-hmm. fascinating dynamics, actually, this has happened to me twice, Dan, in my career. Once writing Young Restless Reform, twice then writing my book, A God Sized Vision, in 2010 on the history Which of Revival. Which is by the way, and I loved. Thank you. Both times I wrote those books and then was working with Tim, with working with Tim Keller, only to, re- to not realize, number one, that revival was a major theme in his ministry. He experienced it as an undergrad at Bucknell, and then again when he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989, both mm-hmm. local revivals. And then also, I found out that there was a mini young, restless, reformed localized to Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, mm. which is which connected there. John Gerstner, who was teaching locally about Jonathan Edwards. It was a mm. huge Presbyterian influence that Tim came under that influence. And then, of course, Ligonier Valley Study Center and R.C. Sproul, which was patterned on Labrie and Francis Schaefer, another reformed leader. Mm. And a so lot of those students, there. there's absolutely a thread. Hundreds of students went from Pittsburgh to uh, went to Gordon-Conwell, where R.C. Sproul was also teaching apologetics adjunct. And mm. so, yeah, there wasn't the widespread kind of continental continental movement that I identified later in 2000, but it's fascinating for the major role Tim has played later on in this Young Restless Reform movement that he actually participated in one as a young man and actually embodied basically everything that I'd written about later just on a more localized, smaller level decades earlier. Yeah, there's, there's so many areas I want to explore here that are fascinating yeah. to me, particularly the influences on Tim, because I have a few other questions about other influences, but I want to camp out there for a second. You know, the, the thread from Schaefer to Sproul to Keller. Yeah, absolutely. Um, explains a lot to me in terms of Keller's kind of mix of evangelism and apologetics yeah. and piety and reformed theology, which I want to explore later. But 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 that threat from Schaefer to did, – did was Keller influenced by Schaefer too in some ways? Because obviously he's probably reading some of that stuff. Schaefer's still on the scene, 60s and 70s, right? Um, he was. You know. He was. Not quite as directly as he was by others. What's interesting is that Tim was influenced primarily by the Labrie slash Ligonier Valley Study Center versions of Schaefer and Sproul. Not mm. quite as much some of the ways that they shifted later in their lives, mm. especially Schaefer's political activism. Um, mm-hmm. That's just not the direction that Tim went. But Tim's understanding of the relationship between evangelism, community, and social engagement is straight up Schaefer. I'm not yeah, going to say it's it really exclusive is. to him completely, but that that combination is classic. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that it was at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, that where Schaefer was lecturing, that R.C. Sproul showed up and asked him a bunch of questions so about how he could start something similar in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that was that whole Jesus movement period of the 60s and 70s yeah. and it was pretty fascinating and uh, yeah there's a there's direct there's a direct connection. Of course uh, RC Sproul officiated Tim and Kathy's wedding. I'm not sure how Which many people even realize that. Amazing to did. me too. Right. Okay, so now I'm now I'm curious cuz I I, I want to ask a couple, so would Tim and Kathy say they were kind of caught up in the Jesus movement? 
Um, I don't think they've put they words kind of to that, but per- they clearly were peripheral Absolutely. around it. I mean, you no, had this. They were right in the there, middle right? of that it. Was... 1970. They're right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That w- that makes. I mean, it was sweeping college campuses, right? And young people were getting caught up in that. Uh, well, let me give Billy you an Graham. Exam- well, you know, so Billy Graham, not an influence. So let mm. me explain why. So major influence on me, of course, major influence on you. You've got the family connection there as well right. with Billy Graham. But Tim, it's a little bit different. So l- let me explain. Tim, as you would imagine, uh, he starts undergraduate in 1968, and he is a very precocious young man. <laughs> you, you're not no surprise. They're intellectually very engaged. Okay. Well, when you look, you see that the kind of books that InterVarsity was publishing and the kind of books that were intellectually stimulating for somebody who was wanting to piece all this together, evangelism, cultural engagement, the church, theology, all that kind of stuff, he was getting from British authors. This mm. wasn't something that Billy Graham was doing at the time. Billy Graham mm. was majorly involved in the Jesus movement, but the Bill Bright, Billy Graham version of it, which also had some very heavy political overtones, Mm-hmm. That was not the Kellers. They weren't at like Explo 72, but they were at Urbana 76 as an example. Mm. So that was one of the one of the differences there. So he's really influenced by John Stott. He's really mm-hmm. influenced by Martin Lloyd-Jones, by J.I. Packer, and then other people like Hans Rookmaker. I mean, people like that who were writing through InterVarsity Press at the time. So no, not a Billy Graham influence there at all. I'm not even sure Billy Graham's mentioned in the book. A little bit of a surprise. Although it's interesting. There's probably an incidental tie because of if you think about the Billy Graham Association. Well, Gordon Conwell. Crusades- I'm sorry. Gordon Conwell. Billy Graham helped found Gordon Conwell. So absolutely, that's the connection. I'm sorry. I just well, forgot that for and a second. And I was going to say even... A- he did help fund Gordon Conwell, but also in the UK, one of the fruits of his yeah. crusades were the some London. of the British authors yeah. that came out of that. So absolutely, your, your the London and your crusades people. and New York Fifty Seven, Dan. So yeah, there, there's definitely so if you're a reading backstory there. If you're reading IVP books by Stott and Packer and all those guys, that's kind of the fruit of that. But that's interesting. I wanted to camp out on that a little bit because he's. I've heard him talk about how much British authors like like Stott and mm-hmm. those guys. It, it makes you. Th- it makes you think too when I think about Keller's story of the impact of that the people don't you don't realize in the moment, right? So right. if you're IVP and you're making publishing decisions in the 1970s, yeah, let's publish this book by Stott. Okay, this sounds like a good idea. I'm sure there's more thought than that, but <laughs> you don't know who's on the other end of those books. Yeah, you don't. You don't know who's picking those up as a college mm-hmm. kid, and the impact of an university distributing good books, the impact of RC Sproul saying, yeah, let's have people in our living room, let's teach. Um, I, I just yeah. think through all that. Um, we don't know the impact. And then here comes someone named Tim and Keller, let me, Kathy Keller, who influenced. And let me give you an example here. So, you know, R.C. was a force of nature. I mean, he was just, a, you know, kind of the, the life of the party, somebody who was interested in so many things, sports, how much he loved the, the Steelers, especially. That is not Tim and Kathy's personalities. So <laughs> interestingly, they really were not, they were not mentored by Sproul. It just wasn't really, mm. they didn't mesh personality wise. So not only do you not know who's on the other end, but maybe sometimes even in your own living room, you don't know what's happening with that wallflower over there. Oh, yeah. You don't know what happens yeah. when there's one woman across the room over here and a guy over here and they're all saying, RC Sproul's there saying, hey, who's going to go to seminary? And, 
Kathy over here is nodding at Tim over here saying, yeah, we're going to Gordon Conwell, but these are not the most impressive people in the room. These are not the life of the party. These are not the Mm. people that you would identify as most likely to succeed. So you don't even know at the time who's going to go on to do what, but you just faithfully teach God's word and plant that seed and the Lord will do with it what he will. That That's amazing to me. I want to talk a little bit more about a few other influences. Yeah. I think when I think of Tim Keller, it's remarkable to me. You know, when I, when I try to explain him to people, I think when I think of him, I first think of him as an evangelist, even though people mm-hmm. don't think of him that way. Cause to me, that explains his apologetics. That explains a lot of yeah, things about him. Is that fair to say? I mean, he obviously is a local church pastor. And yeah. uh, after we talk about this, I want to talk about his formative uh, years in Virginia. But yeah, but well, but him as an him as yeah. an evangelist does that explain kind of his views on cultural engagement? His views on where the church should be. If, if you were to, I think you're, I think you're right about that, Dan, but I'd put a little bit of a finer point on it. The term that Tim uses himself in his book, Center Church, that I pick up on is an ecclesial revivalist. Mm. That means a church-based revivalist. So, yes, he is an evangelist, but a major part of his focus has been awakening Christians or mm. helping people who go to church realize, I don't understand grace. I'm Mm. I'm becoming a Christian for the first time. And the person that's uh, a closest parallel, I think, in American history to Tim would be Jonathan Edwards. And I think that's what you describe Mm. him as, an ecclesial revivalist, a church-based revivalist who was, yes, absolutely doing evangelism. By the way, that is a major difference between them because Edwards is in a thoroughly Christian environment, whereas Tim is in a post-Christian major city. Mm. That's a major difference in their context. But also, both of them heavily involved in social engagement for the purpose of evangelism. So, yeah, an Mm. ecclesial revivalist, but you're not not wrong to, to identify evangelism because clearly... And this is something that people will criticize him for. He runs the issues that he's thinking about through the grid of evangelism. Absolutely. That goes straight back to his campus ministry days. That is, Mm -hmm. I mean, and for those of us like me as well, who came up through campus ministries, that is how a lot of us think about it. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's not wrong. I think that's a good, good perception uh, there, Dan. When I think of Tim's emphasis, emphases to beyond evangelism, and apologetics. I think of piety, you yeah. know, his, you know, his practices of, of, of piety in terms of the spiritual disciplines, you know, his practice of reading the Psalms. I remember one time at a, at an event, someone asked him, what is the one secret you would, you would tell preachers in terms of their preaching that they need to make sure that they do? And I thought he was going to talk about, you know, read this book or have this right. delivery or her. And he said, Reading through the Bible every year, yeah, my whole life has been like yeah. the number one thing, and just his practice of not just spiritual disciplines of reading scriptures, but reading the church fathers, mm-hmm. reading guys like Edwards and Bunyan. So, w- would that be fair? I just think his yeah. emphasis on piety. Whenever you hear him talk about his spiritual practices and what he encourages, yeah, folks in, to in do. his in his understanding of the Reformed community 
uh, Tim would identify three distinct streams, the pietistic stream, the cultural transformationalist stream as well. And those are really, and then there's the doctrinalist stream. Tim would identify with both the pietistic as well as the cultural mm-hmm. kind of cultural transformationalist stream often more so, so the the piety stream often associated with the puritans uh, that's broadly speaking that includes uh kind of an ancillary people like bunyan or like uh you know or like edwards um even mm-hmm. even spurgeon spurgeon was a major influence on keller as right. well uh, so basically anybody banner of truth was publishing <laughs> also based in pennsylvania right. at least in the states yeah Tim was reading and so that's a major one. And then Neo-Calvinism, Herman Bavinck, uh, Abraham Kuyper, mm-hmm. those were the other major influence on him there. So, yeah. And then when it comes down to just those pietistic practices, and, and Tim's become more vocal about this, I think, in recent years. It's just he is an absolute advocate of the McShane reading plan as he well really as is. the Book of Common Prayer working through the Psalms. And no surprise, that's one reason why he's got a Psalms uh, devotional out there. And yeah, I, I appreciate that's I, That is one of the things that's most typical of Tim is any situation he goes through, including the current pancreatic cancer, is an occasion for personal spiritual revival and renewal. That's definitely the core of who he is. Mm. Can you talk about how his early ministry, pastoring a small church in Virginia, really yeah. shaped him? You know, because yeah. um, obviously this, he goes uh, from one one context, yeah. rural, somewhat mm-hmm. rural, probably a little bit more uh, conservative, uh, yeah. Christian friendly. He goes from that context to kind of the opposite in Manhattan, and maybe how those yeah. early years shaped him. Well, the uh, there's so much we could say here, Dan. I I greatly ex- enjoyed exploring the Hopewell years. Um, all three of the Keller's boys were born in in Hopewell, Virginia. Uh, I love the the title of that chapter, the chemical capital of the South, Hopewell, Virginia. <laughs> that church, he got there uh, right at a seminary, in 1975, three month appointment. There were about a hundred members. Two of them had college degrees. Both of them were elementary school teachers. Most of the members uh, did not have an education beyond sixth grade. Some of the members' fathers had fought in the Civil War. That gives you some context there. And he's coming there straight out of Gordon-Conwell and Bucknell. Yeah. And he is a Yankee. His family had been in – his father's family, the Kellers, were eastern Pennsylvania Germans going back to the beginning of the country, basically. (laughs) Um, His mother's family, Italian Catholics, who had come um, more recently. But going to the South was a foreign experience. And I'll just tell this this quick story. There's so much that could be said about the 1,500 sermons that he preached, how he was doing all of the counseling, marriage counseling, all the visitation, the demands, the burnout that he faced um, with that. But I want to just briefly talk about, um, this this gives you a flavor of the book, Bill Hill. A PCA founding father. He was one of the leaders of the, he was a pastor at the church, the uh, the church that it planted, Tim's Presbyterian Church. And what I found so fascinating about Bill Hill is that in post-World War II South, he did two things. One of the things was that he did not allow any display of the American flag in his church to the point where when a veteran was having a funeral, he tore the American flag off the casket Okay. That number two is that when they had a started a new school based in the church, he required it to be integrated. Mm. We're talking 1940s, 50s, Virginia. 
and he wow. requires it to be racially integrated. I share that because it gives you a flavor for what I'm trying to accomplish in this book and to give you a context when this Yankee named Tim Keller comes down, he's not just coming down to save all these Southerners. He's actually coming into a specific context where mm. previous pastors had been doing very countercultural, faithful work and allowed him space in this new PCA denomination to be able to mm. be faithful and to, and to survive in his context. So, yeah, there's a lot we could discuss about that Hopewell, but needless to say, it was where he learned how to be a pastor. Really, and, and one of the things that's interesting about him is that he really didn't start writing or having a platform yeah. until much later. Till, 56 till, really, till he is get, when his first major book comes out. Yeah. Until he gets to New York, essentially, and he's established yeah. in New York. And I, I wonder, too, one of the things I think about Keller is, you know, a lot of guys go to New York. It's a hard place to do ministry. It is. A lot yeah. of folks go there, want to save, save the world, save the city, and they get burned out. Yeah. Do you think because he was already established in who he was and what he believed when he got there, that he was able to handle the pressures of New York, number one, and number two, we live in an age that you've chronicled and we've, we've seen where so many of our, so many people with these big platforms, so, so many Christians have not had the character to withstand the fame, the glare. Yeah. Tim has, Tim and Kelly, or uh, Kathy have. Kelly, yeah. So you, do you think because of that grounding in, in it, that first experience in, in Virginia helps him? I mean, obviously there's other factors, but to, yeah. to, to me, it, it's interesting. A few factors there, Dan. One of them is that, this actually came in the revisions. When I was going back, I'd done a lot of the work on the book, and I went back, and and Tim let me in on something that the major reason he did not want to take the, the opportunity church planting in New York was because he didn't feel like he was spiritually strong enough to be able to handle it. Keep in mind, he'd been coming off burnout a few years earlier in Hopewell. He'd been pretty well settled in at um, Westminster Seminary, and he felt like this would be such a big challenge that would expose the, the lack of his spiritual depth. And that's just not something that I had realized, and it's not something that I've seen him talk about elsewhere. Uh, so mm -hmm. that was kind of like a, an occasion for him to renew his spiritual disciplines and specifically his prayer life. Um, so that, I think, helped a lot. Number two, Related to prayer, Kathy is is adamant that the reason the church worked was because of the prayers of God's people. She actually says that no church in history, no church plant in history has been prayed over more fervently mm -hmm. by Christians, especially Christian women. And she describes the church as, you know, if you want to know how to plant a successful megachurch in New York City, how about you find out where God's going to start a revival and move there a month earlier? They stepped into some really remarkable work, some transformations in the in kind of the economic and financial makeup of the city, the rise of the yuppies, um, some political transformation, still a pretty rough area, but a changing area. And also there were very active organizations at the time, such as Crew, the offshoot of this um, Jesus movement. And they were doing a lot of good evangelistic work there. And Tim tapped into that work as well as the revival, the spiritual revival that was happening more broadly. And uh, then the last thing is that they had done their due diligence 
and ensured that they would be financially supported to much higher degrees than previous church plants had been. Mm. So you combine all of those factors, and I think they explain to a certain extent. I don't know how much of that is replicable, because how do you know where God's going to have a revival break out a month later? That's the mm-hmm. whole joke. But there were some there were a number of conditions that helped to explain why Redeemer Presbyterian Church really took off from the beginning in 89. Mm, That's remarkable. It seems 9-11 had a catalyzing impact on Mm -hmm. the ministry. And, you know, obviously his sermon right after 9-11 is one of the iconic classic sermons, I think, at least at the 21st century, if not Mm -hmm. beyond that. Talk about the role of 9-11 in shaping the ministry. Well, 9-11 was both the event that more than anything else probably has led us to know who Tim Keller is, not only because of the focus on the city in the aftermath, but also on the growth that the church had experienced in the aftermath as well. They they added a service that Sunday after 9-11, and it, it stayed there with them. They added hundreds of, of members and, and just and grew. There were a lot of other churches that saw an immediate influx, but not many people stayed. But a lot of those people stayed at Redeemer. But it is also the incident that came closer to breaking Tim than any mm-hmm. other. The church was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with money. They got a million dollars unsolicited. They didn't know what to do with it. So they had to hire a bunch of people, but then they had to fire a bunch of people because of the recession. New York suffered. New York struggled. Um, there were not many members of the church that were killed. So it wasn't that. It was more of just the trauma that the whole city mm-hmm. had experienced being a part of it. I talked with Mako Fujimura about that, about living downtown in quote unquote, the trauma zone. And mm-hmm. also Kathy was dealing with a very difficult bout of Crohn's disease. And Tim was dealing with his first cancer, his, his um, prostate mm-hmm. cancer at the time. So that, and then amidst all of that, Tim's managerial shortcomings were dramatically exposed uh, to levels of crisis among the staff of the church. So it definitely had an effect not only on propelling Tim toward this kind of global notoriety. I think it's not a coincidence that his book, even though he'd been working on it for decades, comes out in the aftermath of the new atheism, which is in the aftermath of 9-11. Those things are all connected in my mind and Mm -hmm. the book. Um, But it really did come closer than I think a lot of people think uh, to really ending Tim's ministry. That was the time that, as far as I can tell, he most seriously considered stepping away from ministry altogether. That's really... That's really remarkable to think through that, that, that time period. And I, I do, I have heard you elsewhere trace that where um, you had 9 11, uh, suddenly, mm-hmm. suddenly people are saying, maybe religion's the problem. Maybe exactly. religion's dangerous. Yeah, the new Hitchens. atheists. Hitchens, Harris, Dennett. I mean, all those new folks, atheists exactly making that argument. And then here comes mm-hmm. Keller saying, actually, here's why we need this. And Correct. then obviously others follow and he right. others. So I think, I think it's really, Really remarkable. I think for me, when I think of Keller coming of age, reading his his stuff, I think of someone who the way he te- taught was able to draw people further into deep theology, mm-hmm. and yet also, you know, had a lot of seekers, a lot of people who 
are not interested in in Christianity listening to him, even though, right. you know, he is not a seeker friendly guy. I mean, this is no. one of the things I tell people all the time no. <laughs> that that people who today with no historical memory kind of look at Keller and say, oh, he's he's kind of a moderate. He's kind of I was like, no, you, you haven't actually read Keller or listened to no. him because here's a guy <laughs> who goes to Manhattan yeah. when it's what half percent evangelical. Yeah, right. Uh, secular. He's teaching for an hour expository preaching he's teaching biblical sexual ethics yeah that's the big one he's teaching reform theology yeah. like if you could th- those were not the values of the seeker friendly movement of penal substitutionary Bill and Andy stanley and all those guys penal substitutionary atonement justification by faith alone <laughs> the westminster confession the whole thing yeah. you couldn't be more right <laughs> Yeah, like like if there was an anti-seeker friendly model, he was doing that in in the most secular city, yeah. which which just tells you that it was a work of God that you know to, to see God bring those people. I remember maybe a decade ago, I was in New York City for some meetings, and I went and I was like, "Oh, it's Wednesday night. I'm going to see if I can go see Tim Keller at Redeemer." And I looked, and I went, and Tim was doing a talk on sexual ethics, yeah. you know, Christian sexual ethics ethics in the heart of the se- the secular city. So it's really remarkable what, what God has done. He's had such a deep influence. And I really want to encourage folks um, to get this book, Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation by Colin Hansen. We'll have links to it in the show notes. It's out February 7th. You will want this book. Probably a lot of stuff we didn't even cover surprising yeah. influences. <laughs> we didn't even talk much about C.S. Lewis, which is a mm-hmm. huge influence or John Bunyan or any of these others, but oh. Colin, thanks for putting this together. This is amazing. Definitely going to be uh, on everyone's top top read list. Oh, thanks, Dan. It's very kind. It's always good to talk with you, my friend. Well, thank you for, for being on here. And uh, I want to encourage folks to go ahead and get that book. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit DanielDarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at DanDarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.